Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more redheads. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front to take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Coming at you from the capital city of the free state of Florida, where we are waking the woke by exposing them to truth, the Constitution, and a little redneck common sense. Matt, we had uh, quite a significant number of political events this week as we continue to watch the Iowa caucuses develop. We have a, an election out there on Monday, January 15th. The reality is that uh, we're going to know in about 40, 45 days, as we discussed last week, who our conservative champion is going to be for this presidential cycle. But the reality is that there is always a war going on in Washington, a war between right and left, between socialism and freedom, a war between what I would call the uh, radical, crazy, woke, and conservative common sense. And uh, we are honored because one of the great fighters for freedom in D.C., one of the legends in our time, is America's tax cutter-in-chief, the founder of Americans for Tax Reform, Grover Norquist, who's with us in the studio today. Grover, thank you so much for being here with us. What brings you to Tallahassee this week? Well, last night I was meeting with state legislators talking about Florida doesn't have an income tax, one of seven states that doesn't. But there are now 10 other states that are looking to get to zero, that are en route to zero. Uh, Mm -hmm. Next year, one year from now, 365 days from now, New Hampshire will be a zero income tax state. Uh, Over the next 10 years, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia are phasing down. North Carolina has been phasing down for 11 years. They'll be there within the next decade. Um, you're going to have a lot of company about no income tax, maybe mm-hmm. 20 states in the next 15 years. Uh, and so you got to take a look at the other taxes you do have to see which ones can come down. Grover, you, uh, you wrote an op-ed a few days ago, or at least it was published a few days ago. Great reading. And you did talk about some of these very um, same categories you just alluded to the states that are that are no income tax and then the ones that are moving in a different direction. Um, can you expound upon that a little bit, just the value of a single, single digit income tax, no income tax, and what has been that process over the years to try to change the conversation and influence some of these state governments to, to change? Sure. The best state income tax is zero. It's a flat rate, very flat, right. zero. <laughs> um, second best is two, three, four, or five, single rate. Even in Illinois, left-wing, Democrat, corrupt, Illinois, they have a single-rate tax by Constitution, and it is below 5%. You would expect Illinois would look like California, now going up to 14-plus, hmm. New York, 10, 12, 14 in New York City. Um, you'd expect it to be there, but it's not. It's five. Why? Because in Illinois, the Democratic House, the Democratic Senate, the Democratic governor are not capable of looking all the people of Illinois in the eye and say, <laughs> I've got a really good idea and you're all paying for it because the answer is no. Okay, mm-hmm. So they're trying to get to graduated income tax, progressive income tax, divide the people of Illinois into different groups so you can mug them one at a time. Uh, if you can't take on everyone in the room, you take them out one at a time. 
this is the Richard Speck theory of tax increases, also from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you want single rate, and that's easy to reduce. Okay, everybody, we run from five to four and a half. Got it? Understood. No worry about who's getting more or less. We are five to three, five to what? Okay. Um, we're all going up. No, we're not. So the more states that move to single rate taxes, Iowa's passed a law to go to single rate tax. Um, our friends in Mississippi passed a law to go to single rate. Uh, also, and so these movements are very, very helpful. Ohio's about to go to a single rate tax. Uh, North Dakota's doing the same thing. So as we have those states get to single rate, then going to zero becomes much easier. So Grover, you have been, uh, I mean, just a champion on the tax issue, particularly on income taxes across uh, the country. Uh, I've been to your Wednesday group a few times, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. four or five times. It's something that I think anybody who goes to D.C., if they're lucky enough to get there, it's a great thing. You are you are helping to shape this tax policy fight. Here's my question. Uh, you've been waging war in D.C. with Congress. You've been working on the pledge to try to hold them accountable on the income tax issues. Uh, last night in the Nikki Haley-Ron DeSantis debate, we heard – a question about Ron DeSantis's flat tax proposal. This is one of the first times that we've heard any discussion about taxes during this presidential contest. And I'm curious, why do you think that is? It, it is interesting because it's a mistake. Republicans win when they focus on taxes. They lose when it gets drifting off into other issues of the day. Um, what the, where the left is able to describe those issues as they want. They haven't been able to explain to people why higher taxes are a good idea uh, and why lower taxes are a bad idea, but they can go in and explain something else about uh, carbon dioxide and scare people or tell them what to think. Um, taxes are a little binary, a little too easy to understand for the left to manipulate people against their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all – now – uh, all of the candidates running for president have signed the pledge never to raise taxes, no net tax increase. You want to move them around, you want to reform, fine, but no net tax increase. Uh, governor DeSantis signed it as a congressman. He signed it as a governor. Uh, Haley, Bar- uh, Haley Barber, Nikki Haley, mm-hmm. other Haley in the Republican Party, <laughs> Nikki uh, Haley signed it as a governor and kept it uh, and has signed it as a presidential candidate as well. Um, uh, I think it's a very good idea to move to go to a single rate tax. I think we'll get there when we have 20 to 25 states next 10 years plus. Um, We'll have 25 states that have single rate taxes. And then when we say to people, we're just going to do at the national level what we already have at the state level, it becomes increasingly difficult for the establishment to say, this is outside the bounds of reason. Nobody's ever talked about this. No, go check with, and there's some blue states that have single rate taxes like Illinois. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Grover, what's your take on property taxes these days? Uh, Brett and I were talking uh, um, 15 or maybe a few few years longer ago than that when Marco Rubio was the Speaker of the Florida House. He had a tax reform package idea to re- eliminate property taxes in Florida and do some swapping with uh, with sales tax. And I know you were um, have, have weighed in on those kinds of policy proposals. It feels right now that property taxes are starting to become more and more of a problem with people as, as values rise and people are seeing their tax bill go up just because of that. Um, any thoughts on that? What's the latest in that debate? Sure. Um, even red states have problems with blue cities and have problems with nonpartisan mayors 
um, who are Democrats. Uh, and the challenge there is cities and local governments are spending too much money. They're spending too much money. It doesn't really matter whether they steal it out of your right pocket or your left pocket, sales tax, property tax. That's not the problem. It's the fact that they're spending too much. They're signing contracts with pensions that you and I and normal people will never see for government workers. They're hiring too many government workers. Those numbers are going up completely unnecessarily, uh, and it costs a lot of money, and then they take it out of property tax, sales tax, other taxes. Um, very important to put a spending limit on cities, counties, um, and then you can also look at doing a property tax limit. That's what California did with Prop 13. Um, but if you just control the assessment, the rates can go up. Mm -hmm. If you just control the rates, the assessment goes up. I don't know how many times I've talked to people, well, the assessments aren't a problem in our state. It's the rates. Mm -hmm. Oh, the rates aren't a problem in our state. It's the assessment. No, no, it's the two numbers multiplied by each other. That's the tax. So better to say total property tax on your house can only go up 3% a year. Um, the other one is to limit the number of taxes you have because the other way mm -hmm. cities, towns, counties spend too much is they have fees, 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 fees. No, not taxes, they're fees. You try not paying them. You'll discover their fees, their taxes. Um, so those, the, the total number of taxes needs to be lower so people can keep an eye on them. And then I would strongly recommend putting a cap on spending, mm. the ability of local governments to continue spending too much. Um, Perhaps tying it to some sort of index. Do you like that idea? You could say it could grow, but no faster than the wages of the people in the state last year. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, or the consumer price index. Some something that puts a real cap on it. And the other one, Texas has been trying to manage this. They have crazy cities out of out of line. State does okay. Cities are very bad. And then the cities talk the state Republican elected officials into taking state taxes and subsidizing their overspending at the local level. That's not a property tax cut. That's a subsidy for more spending by <laughs> Dallas and Austin. Love it. Uh, we are with Grover Norquist today, who's the chairman of America's for Tax Reform. He is America's tax cutter in chief, discussing taxation not only at the federal level, but across the states. Stick with us through the break. We're When we get to the next segment, Grover, I really want to talk about inflation. I want to talk about attitudes. We had a discussion last week with a pollster who was telling us that maybe people don't quite get what inflation means to them as far as a tax. So stick with us. We're with American View and Grover Norquist of Americans with Tax Reform. Never fear. Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. Where men are men and their ladies just want to love them. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. This is a special treat today. We have Grover Norquist of Americans for Tax Reform with us in studio talking about tax policy across the country. Something we have not heard presidential campaigns talk a lot about. Grover, just kind of kicking things off here a little bit. Here's something I wanted to ask you. We had a pollster on with Signal last week. I know that you know the guys from Signal well. They do polling all over the country. We, we're talking about inflation and what it means to the average consumer. It's difficult for them to explain exactly the pain that they're feeling, but they're feeling it. Now, I want to ask you this question. Congress, I know many of these guys, especially Republicans, will sign your pledge mm -hmm. and say that they're, they're not going to raise taxes. 
But the reality is, alluding to something you just said in the last segment, the spending is killing us because it's this, these trillions of dollars of spending in debt that's pumping up the money supply, and it's killing seniors and senior savers. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about maybe holding them to some sort of a spending pledge as well as a tax pledge. This is a very interesting question. It's, it's fairly easy to have a pledge. I'm not going to raise taxes. I will not vote for a tax increase because on Tuesday you either did or didn't vote for a tax increase. Spending is more difficult because it goes to committee. It comes back from committee. It goes to the House. It goes to the Senate. Everybody touches it. Nobody touched it twice. Uh, and then it fiddles around and then it pops out. And people can say, well, I, I didn't like 12 of the things in that bill. And I, I voted against them in committee and I voted against it once before. It's not as easy to make it clear who's voting for spending as it is for taxes mm -hmm. because it is as if it was designed to make it difficult to tell who's responsible for the spending. I think it's a little on purpose mm -hmm. uh, when they move it around the way, that way. That said, when it does get done at the end of the day, when you spend too much money, you end up printing money for the mm -hmm. government to pay it. Uh, and that is it. It is a tax, in not a legal tax, but it is a tax in the sense it's an expropriation of your wealth. The dollars in your pocket, the dollars in the bank that you have there are worth less at the end of the day, at the end of the year, because the government has inflated the currency 5 10%. And mm -hmm. Biden's given us the worst inflation since Jimmy Carter. Uh, and this is expensive. Now, people see it sporadically. You see it with gasoline taxes, mm -hmm. gasoline taxes, but also gasoline prices. Um, you see it in grocery shopping, and then you see it with what happens to, because of interest rates, uh, with your mortgage. So some things are easier to tell than others. Some things you don't buy terribly often, but that is a way the government expropriates money from people and then uses it. Matt, I'm, I'm going to take a moment of personal privilege here and ask a follow-up to this. So remember when they were appealing, or excuse me, when Republicans were trying to repeal Obamacare? Yes. And we knew it couldn't pass, but I think it was like 30 plus or 40 plus times they brought a bill up to repeal Obamacare. Um, why are there no members of Congress that are bringing up some sort of amendment to cap spending and or bringing up a uh, significant tax overhaul and just doing it again and again and again just to make the point? And I know you may not have the best answer for it, but I'm just curious, why don't they do these kinds of things to really project a strong image on taxes? One is that the establishment press will not cover votes like that that put the Democrats in a bad light, and they'll say – well, it's not going to pass the Democratic Senate, so it doesn't really matter. The president would veto it. Mm -hmm. They did this when the Republican House and Senate under Gingrich and uh, it passed a lot of really good legislation, but it wouldn't even be publicized because, they, well, the president won't sign it, so there's no point in discussing it. So it wasn't on CBS. So now what you could have is talk radio and some other mechanisms to get it out. But speaking to people who don't follow politics, it, it's difficult for the American people to hear something that the establishment press decides isn't important, won't be discussed. That, that's one reason. The, the other is, um, longer term, we're working at Americans for Tax Reform on getting a new committee in the House and the Senate, one that existed during World War II. So it's not a fantasy. It's been done. This is the anti- <laughs> you, you weren't around for that time, right? <laughs> I was not, but I, I, I read a book and wrote an article on the subject. Uh, and uh, what it does is it's a committee that only recommends budget cuts. And the rest of the House and the Senate have agreed that if this committee recommends something, they will have a vote. They didn't promise to pass it. They promised to have a vote. If we can get this committee in the House and then eventually in the Senate when Republicans take control of the Senate, you would be able to, on a regular basis, target 
particularly egregious spending that's in the news, which means the press would tend to cover it. Mm-hmm. Um, and having those votes would put D's on the line, not with a question of, you know, when you're talking about billions and billions, it's a lot of, what about this specific stupid thing that the government does? How about only doing it half the time? Um, 100%. Love it. Wherever you're talking about what the mainstream media will cover, uh, it's a little bit of a segue to something we really wanted to ask you about, and that's just everything that surrounded the coup of the Speaker of the House um, last year. And uh, I think Americans for Tax Reform actually did a little bit of radio ads talking about that whole process, Uh, just kind of the brokenness of things, how people can get um, wrapped up in getting coverage for themselves, for their own personal political ambitions. Um, How is the system doing? I mean, is it is it worse than it was 20 years ago? Is there hope for reform? Is there hope for improvement? Yeah. Keep in mind, the Republicans were in the minority in the House, in the Senate. From 1932 to 1994, all but four years, mm. okay? Um, two years under Truman, two years under Eisenhower, the Republicans had the House and the Senate. Congress runs the country. Congress runs the country. Presidents start wars. Presidents have scandals. But Congress passes laws uh, or repeals laws. Presidents don't. Uh, again, they, they start wars. And uh, Congress matters. Since 94, when almost 100% of the Republicans in the House and Senate signed the pledge never to raise taxes and kept it, kept it, broke it in 90, or rather Bush did, lost the election message to people, don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, since 94, the Republicans have won control of both houses of Congress half the time, 50%. We're competitive. So younger people need to understand, you don't know what it was like, kid, <laughs> for 62 years, the Democrats ran the whole country all the time at the national level. Uh, and now we're competitive. So it's frustrating because we think we should be able to do more faster, but sometimes you don't have the president. Um, And when we had a narrow majority, Matt Gates of Florida and a handful of other people, sometimes there were eight people, sometimes as many as 20, who said, we don't care if we pass a bill that makes the world better. We just want everyone to know how virtuous we are. Mm -hmm. You know, the liberals do virtue signaling where they don't actually do anything for the environment, but they they carp and make noise and say, look at me, aren't I pretty? Um, We have a handful of people who have helped pass no useful legislation, but do shoot down stuff that uh, they shoot in the back, those pieces of legislation that make the world a little bit better and might actually get the Senate and the president to agree to it. We we took $20 billion out of the IRS. Mm. They were going to spend... 80 billion total, but 40 of that to hire people to harass you and do audits and things like that. 40 billion. We took 20 billion off the table. And again, you've got a handful of people. Matt Gates is probably the most famous one, certainly in Florida, who says, it's not perfect. It's not what I would have written. Well, did you do any work to get additional votes for it? No, I don't do work. I don't do windows. I go on TV or radio mm-hmm. to whine that everybody else isn't as perfect and virtuous as I am. And that virtue signaling is destructive when the left does it, although I'd love it if they just virtue signal and not pass legislation. But it, it is destructive here where when you don't have control of the Senate, you don't have – I think these people didn't read the Constitution all the way through. Right. They seem to think that whatever you could pass through the House becomes a law. Uh, what is it, Schoolhouse Rock? Right. When you learn that there's a Senate and a president and we should at least get our elected officials up to Schoolhouse Rock level of understanding of – what the rules of the game are. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to toss a football and get 100 points for the touchdown. No, that's yeah. not the rules. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, so that's, um, that's a fun one. 
I think at the end of the day, the uh, challenge uh, that we have is a lot of what I would call headline policy making. Um, and just commenting on what Except you just there's said. no policy making attached right. to the headline. <laughs> no. exactly. It'd be fine if somebody was going, hey, look, the law I passed that, that cut taxes and reduced spending, aren't I great? I'm, I'm, I'm all up. You are great when you do yeah. that. Yeah. I, I had a thought, I had a brain fart, and the rest of you should respect that. It doesn't mean anything, but what? Why should we respect that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So as we get uh, kind of uh, winding into uh, the end of the, the interview here, uh, Grover, I just have a couple of questions for you that I think would be good for our listening audience. You, you've been fighting battles on the Hill. You've been fighting battles state by state. Of course, I got to tell you, uh, you know, I, I want you to be successful in those states, but I don't want Florida to lose its competitive edge and that no income tax has been a competitive edge for us, but other states would be smart to follow uh, suit. But tell us how people can get involved with ATR quickly with the last minute that we have sure. left. Americans for Tax Forum, ATR.org is our website, mm-hmm. uh, and we'd uh, love to have you uh, participate. Uh, people who are politically active, uh, just send us a note. Um, send me a note, Gene Orquist at ATR.org, uh, and we'd love to be in touch with you and put you in touch with uh, structures and organizations, a lot of good conservative groups in, in Florida. And there are four different center-right meetings in Florida, Tallahassee, Orlando, Miami, and um, Naples. It's coming soon uh, to Jacksonville. So we're people with organizations, college Republican chapters, uh, taxpayer groups can meet together and talk about how to change the world. It has been a blast. Grover Norquist, Americans for Tax Reform. He is America's tax cutter in chief. Please go to ATR.org. These guys are fighting the good fight. Stick with us for the next segment. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke. America in View will be right back. Freeing the woke from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, that was a great interview, Matt, for the first two segments. We had Grover Norquist on with Americans for Tax Reform. And uh, it was nice that Grover was actually here in Tallahassee today and could be with us in studio. If you missed the first two segments, you definitely need to go back to our webpage, America in View, and listen to the first two segments. Grover always brings a unique perspective on tax cutting policy. And I introduced him as America's tax cutter in chief. I know for some people in the audience that may feel like a little bit of radio hyperbole, but the reality is, is that Grover Norquist has been on the front lines of cutting income taxes at the federal level. And, and uh, since then has also delved into state policy where he's worked on um, property tax cuts, He's worked on different kinds of fees and sales tax cuts. And, you know, Matt, Grover's also been a strong advocate for lawsuit reform. Some people would refer to that as the tort tax. Uh, but anyway, it was it was a real pleasure to have him on the show yeah, this he's, morning. Yeah, he's got a real depth of knowledge. And anytime somebody has worked on a specific topic or, you know, a silo for so long, I think he's, he started in the 80s. And mm-hmm. just his knowledge about what's going on in the other states is, is interesting to hear him talk about California and Illinois and some of these blue states actually having more reasonable tax policies or even moving in a more tax reform direction, um, which I think just goes to show that even even though we perceive it as a left-right issue, it is still an issue that a wide range of Americans see as a problem. They, they don't want their taxes to be too high. And even in some of these states that um, you would associate with more socialistic type policies, they, they want to rein in spending too. 
So I thought that Grover was being a little bit polite. He did make the comment that all of the presidential candidates on the Republican side of the aisle have signed the No New Taxes Pledge. That is great. And I'm glad that Grover's organization is there to hopefully hold their feet to the fire at some point in the future. You and I had a show last fall where we discussed the disappointing lack of conversation by the presidential candidates regarding tax policy. And in uh, a couple nights ago, as we were watching the debate, the last debate, the last Iowa debate for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis was asked asked a question about his flat tax plan, which I think, Matt, if I'm going back through my notes quickly, maybe the first time that we've seen a tax question asked of any of the presidential nominee or uh, we, those going for the yeah, nomination. Yeah, we were keeping track as we were watching the debates through this through this uh, political season. It, there was some tax policy discussion a little bit because every time it would come up, I would I would take a note of it. But it really has not been front and center in any way. And I, I certainly, you know, I, I keep thinking back to the era of Steve Forbes and Herman Cain and some of these guys who would come forward and they would have aggressive um, tax reform plans that, I think a lot of conservatives liked there were always the the uh, more establishment Republicans that would usually have some form of tax cutting, but they would keep the structures of tax um, the same. You know, still have a progressive income tax and all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it was it's it's just been a lack of um, focus on the on this on this presidential race. So he was asked about it. I thought his answer was great. He has a flat tax plan. The, uh, the kind of snarky, gotcha, journalistic question that was posed to him by Dana Bash was, you know, are you telling me that the rate for rich people is going to be the same as the rate for poor people? Some version of that, I'm paraphrasing. You know, I kind of wish he had said, yeah, that's the definition of a flat tax. <laughs> right. He, he was more savvy and political about how he answered it. You know, he's, he said, look, if you're at a certain low level of income, you're not going to pay anything at all because there's going to be exemptions. Um, but then he gave what I thought was a very good answer. He said... Um, he just reworded what she had said. Look, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you're going to pay a certain amount of tax. If you make two hundred thousand, you're going to pay double the, double that. Right? right? It's like a redefinition of what a flat tax is, but it reminds everybody it's you're still paying more taxes if you're paying more, if you're making more money. So um, yeah, but and then they just moved on. I mean, it wasn't focused or dwelt upon in any way. Well, it's the same argument that many Democrats or liberals will make about Florida having a regressive tax by having a sales tax that's applied equally to all. But the easiest pushback on that argument is that wealthier people tend to buy wealthier things and therefore are always paying a significantly higher proportion of the overall sales tax burden in Florida than are less fortunate or or less wealthy uh, Floridians. So I, I think it was a good answer on his response to just kind of talk about the overall tax bill. Um, It was interesting to me, I think, as I was sort of flipping back and forth over to the Trump town hall, that Trump didn't focus more on taxes. That was one of his big hallmarks from his presidency in 2016 and 2017 was the tax package. That is coming up in a couple more years for expiration, and that is going to have a dramatic impact on our economy if Joe Biden is reelected. Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, you know, it's something that people deal with every day. You don't always see it, right? You know, your income taxes, for most people, it just comes out of their paycheck. They never, it never hits their bank account. Um, you know, when you, buy, when you buy gasoline, you don't really see how much of that is taxed. You do notice it when you pay um, for, 
for retail goods and you pay a sales tax, you kind of are reminded how much of it is a tax. And it's it's just an area that I think with inflation being such a problem the last couple of years that that has gotten all the attention, which you you made the point earlier on this show, it's really just another form of a tax as they monkey around with the money supply. Um, but to me, and one of the things that I think Grover Norquist has done a good job of is is try to define what the end goal ought to be. What We all know there's going to be some taxes. We all mm-hmm. know that taxes are, are an inevitability in a society that has a government. Um, but what are we working toward? And I think that progressive income tax for me is just the chief emblem of the left's mindset about everything. Uh, they view wealth as something that's never deserved, that it's just a circumstance, and that if you have wealth, then you ought to be paying for everybody else. Just kind of like you, you, you got born with money and, you know, Start paying the bills. So I, I love the fact that DeSantis's tax plan is a flat tax. I wish there was more conversation about that because you're not just talking about a number. You're talking about the fundamental structure of government, and you're talking about the fundamental assumptions that we make about how society and the economy works. Yep, 100%. You know, one of the things that I always uh, sort of despise by the anti-tax cutters, or I should say the tax raisers, let's make that simpler, are those people who fight back against reforms with this simple question, oh my goodness, what are we going to replace it with? Uh, we, Matt, you and I both did some consulting in Alabama in the last political cycle. There was a governor's race going on up there, and one of the proposals that may have been, I think, more of a difference maker in that uh, gubernatorial race would have been a debate over whether Alabama should completely eliminate their income tax. And uh, the constant stream of dissent from even Republicans always centered on this question, what are we going to do to replace it? Which is just such a lame excuse, in my opinion, because here Alabama has uh, literally hundreds of thousands, well, I should say hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of uh, wealth that leaves that state by retirees from the state coming to Florida because Florida doesn't have an income tax. And they can live in the panhandle and then go back and visit their fr- friends and relatives in Alabama, and, and they, have, they, they get an immediate raise. It's like all these national uh, investors now that are moving to Miami and Tampa and Naples. They come to Florida because they can live on the coast. They can take their jet back to their business, but they don't have to pay a personal income tax in the state of Florida. So you would think that people would just get it and would move forward with this. But what do you say to these people? Do you just say, look, get over it? come up with a solution? Uh, I mean, that seems to be the logical answer, but I just it, it, it troubles me that so many Republicans are unwilling to sort of grab hold of that and do something with it. It's that swamp factor that we've been talking about. I mean, uh, we've been talking about it forever. Trump used that phrase to um, describe a culture in Washington, D.C., and that culture does exist in other states, in their state capitals, with their special interest. And uh, it's unfortunate that there is not an appetite to reduce spending and to reduce taxation, to reduce the size of government. Those are true conservative principles. Um, but unfortunately, people start to benefit from the tax scheme, from the from the tax and spend scheme. And so I think they, they start to see it that way. But if you're a true conservative, I think your objective should be to either restrain or even reduce the size and scope of government. And the way that you measure that um, is how much are you spending and, and what proportion are you spending? Is it is our is our government going to be funded at twenty percent of GDP? Is it more than that? Should it be less than that? I you know it should be much less than that. 
Um, but that's that's really the debate. It's it's a overall structural and policy debate. Well, I'm going to make a prediction for you. And my prediction is is that a Republican is going to beat Joe Biden next fall. If all of our Republican voters in Florida and other key swing states will turn out to vote. Uh, however, here's what the swamp in D.C. will say. And we can discuss this in the last segment, Matt. They'll say we can't do income tax reform or extend the Trump tax cuts because it will cause more inflation. Now, you mark my words. I'm making the prediction right here. But we're going to be talking about this a year from now, and that's going to be the excuse. And we're going to have another big debate within the Republican caucus. Yeah, it becomes there. It's like we've ruined the economy, but we can't ruin it more because it'll make it worse. I mean, it's like a circular argument. That is exactly right. Always pushing back. Uh, well, stick with us as we get into the fourth segment of the show today. We're talking about tax reform and tax policy. We had Grover Norquist on. If you didn't catch him in the first two segments, go listen to us in our podcast at America in View. They're 10 pounds of common sense in a five-pound bag. Matt and Brett will be right back. From the front lines of the fight against socialism, it's America in View. We're talking about taxes today. Taxes all across the country, taxes at the state level. Matt, a disappointing lack of conversation about taxes at the presidential level. Finally, in the Iowa debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley earlier this week, DeSantis was asked a question about his flat tax plan, and I thought he handled it fairly well. The question is, does that debate and does his answer on taxes move the needle in Iowa? There's been a lot going on this week. Unfortunately, I don't think the tax question is going to make any difference. It's just it's just not, not being focused upon. Uh, it's been a busy week. Um, earlier the week, uh, Chris Christie dropped out. Um, Ramaswamy didn't make the, the debate. Uh, I, he did some of counter counter programming, kind of like what Donald Trump has done. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been busy. It's kind of hard to believe it's, it's next week, you know, we're going to have this vote. Um, so it's sort of anticlimactic. Yeah. Everything we've been talking about is, has been, you know, now it's actually happening for real. seems like Trump is, is way ahead as, as everybody has understood. Um, the Iowa vote's really going to be about second place. I didn't see a ton of change. I mean, from my view, I, I don't see people having strongly different views based on anything that's happened or been said this week. I I thought the debate was unfortunately a lot of sniping back and forth as these two candidates have finally gotten to this position where they see each other as the biggest obstacle to this um, race for second place. So I, I thought the tone of the debate was not great, but I did think that um, – I thought Governor DeSantis got comfortable through the debate uh, as it got a little bit deeper. I thought his his comments were a little more statesmanlike, uh, a little more substantive, and um, we'll see on Monday. I mean, it's it's going to be the big thing: who who gets second place, and is there any kind of momentum to get to that? Um, you know, that position we've been that theoretical thing we've been talking about. Do one of these challengers to Trump get into a one on one contest in the voters' minds, and and does anything change? Yeah, I got to ask you that. So I look, I'm going to take a little bit of a contrarian view here. Uh, I, you know, Ron DeSantis is uh, been a phenomenal governor, and I think he's still growing as a presidential candidate. He seems to have gotten dramatically better, even in the last couple of months. I was I was a little wearied by the debate earlier this week, Matt. Um, quite honestly, it was I, you know, when you have just the two DeSantis and Haley and Haley standing there side by side. It seemed like for much of the debate, they took every moment to snipe at the other one 
and it just didn't feel real substantive. Now I lots, got lots of uh, domain names being thrown around. Yes, you yes. know, I felt like I was watching um, an infomercial or something. It's like remind the remind the customer where to go to buy the product. Right. Well, I got so frustrated with it, I ended up just turning off the debate and going to bed. I couldn't take it anymore. I didn't, you know, read some of the return. But you watched the whole thing. You thought DeSantis really closed strong on the I debate. did. I thought his, his closing, they, they they asked each candidate to say something nice about the other. And I thought that was a moment where just on tone, he seemed more like a grown-up, more generous, more kind, even despite the fact that there had been a lot of that vitriol earlier in the debate. And uh, she took a pass. I mean, she was – basically took the route of, you know, I'm not going to say anything if I can't say anything nice. And I didn't think it looked good for her. I thought it was pretty neat. You told me that uh, one of the things that came out was his discussion of um, the first lady, uh, Casey DeSantis, attending college at the College of Charleston. You know, you and I both went to the Citadel. I didn't know she was a Charleston. I did uh, not know that either. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, well, look, let's talk about a few of the other things uh, and just maybe see where this, uh, how this Iowa thing is positioned. Uh, I was talking to um, a couple folks who were actually helping to manage on a contract basis the Ron DeSantis ground game operation. Actually, I should not say the ground game operation for DeSantis, but for a super PAC supporting DeSantis. And they're bullish. They're very positive about uh, what they're seeing on the ground. Um, Of course, you know, when you're having those sort of door-to-door conversations, I think people tend to tell uh, people at the door, what they want to hear, as opposed to what they may say to an ano- a, a, a anonymous pollster. Um, but but still, they're very positive. I think that Iowa, based on what I've been able to see, what my experience has been on presidential campaigns over the last 20 years, has been that Iowa is a state where you can see some surprises. You can really see a lot of movement in the last 72 hours that will change the entire trajectory of the contest going forward. So it's hard to tell. I was talking to a few other reporters uh, with national networks about what they're seeing on the ground. And it's interesting. The support for Trump is real. It's broad-based. The question will be whether there's a little maybe lack of energy. So if Trump's um, supporters are not energetic in the midst of this Iowa blizzard that's going on up there right now, and if DeSantis's guys are really as energetic as the ground teams are saying that they are, well, we could have some surprises. And I think if this thing gets closer than uh, what's projected right now, I think the DeSantis can make a good case for going forward uh, at least till Super Tuesday. I I mean, it's definitely the state that is going to reward a strong ground game, a lot of in-person activity. One thing in the debate, Governor DeSantis would mention Governor Reynolds from Iowa being on his team, being an endorser, and that always got a big applause, uh, mm-hmm. a, big, a big applause moment. And so those things start to sink in with people. I, I think with Haley, she she may have peaked a few weeks ago when it mm-hmm. kind of seemed like she was the she was the um, she just had a bump, you know, like the maybe she had a good debate performance and there was some uh, some enthusiasm around her. She picked up some donors, but. Um, which, which helped until people started figuring out who those donors were. Yeah, and she hasn't. She just hasn't been as strong. I mean, she she's a good. She talks well. Um, she talks a lot. I mean, it's a it's kind of a steady stream once she starts going. And uh, you know, Chris Christie didn't endorse her. Um, I think there's some thought that that maybe she might have peaked a hair too soon. 
Yeah. Did you catch? Did you catch the news about Chris Christie's hot mic moment Loved earlier it. this week? <laughs> it's just always funny when you hear politicians saying something. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's if the camera if he thinks the camera and the mic's off, it's always interesting. Yeah. What did he say? Yeah, Nikki Haley was going to get smoked. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And you know. It, I think they were like not even sure who he was talking to because it was backstage, but that's funny. By the way, that is going to cause me to apologize to our audience because I was uh, projecting the theory toward the end of last year that Chris Christie and Nikki Haley had some sort of preset deal that he was going to drop out and endorse her to try to help her win New Hampshire. But after that comment last night, I don't think I can hold to that theory any longer. Right, and and you maybe it was maybe it was in the works, or maybe it was just something he was trying out at the one debate. Maybe he just saw it as an opportunity to stick up for her and, and cast himself as um, friendly to her voters and her constituents. But, you know, yeah, it doesn't seem to be playing out that way. So getting back to the tax thing, because I feel like we need to sort of finish on a high note. So the good news is, is that the tax question, the tax, let's just call it debate, was in, interjected into the presidential campaign in a more dramatic way this week. I hope that continues to stay the course because... I think this can be a key differentiating factor between Biden and and uh, whoever the Republican nominee is, or even if it's Trump. He should be talking about his tax cut plan and whether it needs to be continued, right? So, I mean, I think this is a key uh, contrast point for going uh, forward. Uh, the question, of course, will be whether it changes anything in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I, I just don't know at this point that it changes anything in Iowa, but I think that it could change something in New Hampshire, which has typically been anti-tax. Yeah. And the sequence, there's a little bit of a gap between uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. I forget what the typical gap has been, but it's a few weeks this time. And so there's going to be a lot of of talk and discussion. The results Monday in Iowa will influence that. And it just continues to be American politics, the way it works. I mean, these people are going out and talking to voters, talking to uh, thought leaders and influencers, and there's still time to, to go. There's still time to make some changes. Yeah, agreed. I agree completely. Uh, one of the things that I think was interesting about Grover's comment in the first segment at Grover Norquist uh, with Americans for Tax Reform, who we interviewed earlier in the show, is he said that New Hampshire was looking at going to zero income tax. And so I, I think, you know, not that we're here trying to give presidential candidates any big time advice, but I would encourage DeSantis strongly to get refocused on this tax issue because I think people are hurting right now and I think they need to know that some relief is on the way. Relief in, in the form of tax reform and tax cuts would be welcome news for everybody. And spending. I mean, spending has to go hand in hand with the tax cuts uh, if we're going to see those inflationary pressures uh, drop. Um, I think, Matt, this has been a phenomenal show today. And I really had a good time talking with Grover. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have on Darren Shaw, who is the pollster for national pollster for Fox News, who will help us deconstruct some of the results in Iowa and New Hampshire and maybe talk about what the landscape looks like going forward. Uh, next week, it looks like we're going to have um, uh, Franklin Graham's son on, who's the COO of um, Samaritan's Purse. And so I'm excited. we got a couple of great shows in a row. Thanks for being with us today. America in View. Happy New Year. And I look forward to seeing you again soon.
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com.